Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Cosmic Controversy, episode number two. Today's guest is Stephen Kane. He is a busy young planetary scientist at the University of California, Riverside, who is originally from Australia. What puzzles you most about our own planet, Venus? Yeah, that's uh, the whole idea of just looking at Venus and wondering if... uh, if it's habitable or could have been habitable. Uh, you know, something I often speak about to my colleagues is that uh, science fiction movies about potential life on the surface of Venus or what it could be like were being made right up until 1965, the very last Hollywood film that depicted uh, uh, American astronauts going to the surface of Venus and finding a lush kind of rainforest environment with dinosaurs living there, actually. Um, that was in 1965. And and ideas about life on the surface of Venus, you know, that, that had died many years earlier. And the reason is because we could see the surface of Mars through a telescope. We couldn't see the surface of Venus until we actually went there. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the thing that, that really fascinates me and also bothers me <laughs> about Venus uh, in the sense that the fact that we had to actually go there to figure it out, to figure out that it was completely different from what we might call habitable in any way, shape or form. Um, we, we had to actually go there. And of course, that's a problem for, for, uh, for planets around other stars, which I know we'll talk about in, in a moment. But, but the thing that really fascinates me about Venus is we know now that it is completely different. And I'm just constantly plagued by this question of why? How did we get to where we are now? We're looking at Venus at at an age of four and a half billion years. um, And it's obviously had this extremely rich history. And so the thing that fascinates me is just understanding that history of Venus as best we can. And I would say, um, personally, from my own point of view, I find Venus heartbreaking because, as you say, you actually classify it as an Earth-like planet, and it is almost like our twin sister that's somehow gone wrong. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And whereas Mars, you know, Mars is tantalizing, and, you know, maybe it had microbial life uh, back in the day, way back, uh, but... It's not as heartbreaking. To, Mars is not as a, is not as much of a planetary heartbreaker to me personally. When I look at a planet like Venus, which you know obviously is not habitable now, but you know it, it sure seemed to have maybe been a planetary Valhalla, you know, way back. Uh, what what are your thoughts? I mean, when you compare Venus yeah. and Mars, yeah, I think uh, the way you put that. I, I I really like that a lot because I, I think inevitably we draw comparisons to things which are similar, but then in the end we find that they're dissimilar. I mean, from a human perspective, we tend to empathize most with people who we can see 
are very similar to us. Maybe they have similar circumstances in their lives. Um, and you, you can look at somebody who is very similar to you in many ways, but they're in a very different situation. And you wonder, could my life have been like that? You know, could I have ended up in their situation? And, and it's true that that's how, that, that's the kind of emotion that really draws up when we think about Venus. It is heartbreaking. Um, and when we compare it to something like Mars, it's, it's, it's very, very different because Mars is half the size of the Earth. It's a tenth of the mass. Um, and so it's had an extremely different, different history uh, all the way through. Uh, but Venus is, uh, is a planet where we could easily imagine that, uh, that they really did form together and have for perhaps a, a long part of their history almost identical evolutions so so, uh, so you so, so you mean venus and earth form pretty much at the same time and and yes v- venus and earth yes right yes now of the two of venus and mars which was initially most suited for life as we know it do you think i, I would say it was most definitely venus uh venus uh from what we understand now uh, had a lot of water delivered to it in the early part of the formation. So it probably started with a very high, what we call uh, volatile inventory. That just means it has probably had a, a lot of water provided. Now, now what happened after is uh, is open to debate, and we can talk a, a lot more about the controversy surrounding that. Now we hear the term volatile. Go ahead. I, I, just wanted, oh, I just wanted to make a parenthetical definition. We hear the planetary scientists use the term volatiles uh, quite a bit. Yeah. And so for listeners who are not, who are, who are not uh, um, privy to the, to the definition of volatile, could you give us a brief expl- uh, a definition of volatile? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, Normally, we define uh, elements into what we call refractory and volatile type of elements. Refractory tend to be the very heavy things, and that can be uh, the the metals and sometimes can even include silicates and things that form rocks, uh, whereas volatiles, we're talking um, uh, more about the lighter elements, uh, and, but it can include carbon. Uh, so carbon is uh, often considered a, a volatile when we're talking about planetary science. But in the context of habitability, when you have, hear somebody talking about the volatile content of a planet, they're usually talking about the water content. Okay. And um, in terms of, of Venus, back to, to, to Venus, you actually classify, still classify technically Venus as an Earth-like planet. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so, so this is uh, representing the issue that we face in, uh, in exoplanetary science because uh, when we're looking for planets around other stars, uh, we tend to focus on uh, planets which are the size of the Earth. And there's, there's a number of reasons for that, by the way, um, one of the most obvious is that it's just purely anthropic, right? That, that that we are here on Earth, we know that life evolved here on Earth, and so that tends to naturally make us want to look for planets which are may have had a very as similar as possible evolutionary pathway as, as the Earth. But also for 
detection reasons. Um, and this is one of the big differences between Earth and Mars, by the way. When we talk about Mars as an extremely interesting astrobiology target, which it is, um, but when when it comes to looking for planets around other stars, Mars is not nearly as interesting as Venus because for one of the reasons uh, is that we're just not sensitive enough to find Mars analogs. As I mentioned earlier, Mars is half the size of the Earth. That means it's extremely difficult to find a Mars around another another star. Um, but um, uh, the focus then is on uh, Earth-sized planets. And so that means that when you see these press releases, we've seen many over the past 10 years or so, of discoveries of planets which are earth size, and often the headlines will refer to them as being Earth-like, which is a very misleading phrase because that naturally conjures up images of the Earth when, uh, when you talk to people about it. But the thing is, Venus and Earth are the same size. And so when we uh, discover a planet that is the size of the Earth, then that's the same as saying the size of Venus. So we could uh, easily, instead of calling uh, Earth-sized planets Earth-like, we could call them Venus-like. And, of course, that has very different connotations about how meanable they may be to the presence of life on the surface. And so uh, can you take us back to the beginnings of the solar system and just kind of compare the three quickly? Uh, after they yeah. after they cooled down and and became somewhat habitable, um, what was going on on Venus? What was going on on Earth? What was going on on Mars? Say a billion years, at, or well, let's say half a mil, half a billion years after their formation. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. So so for for Earth, we we understand Earth reasonably well. That half a billion years after. Formation would have been getting towards the end of a period called the Hadean uh, era when, when the Earth was still cooling off and you would have seen a lot of the uh, oceans rapidly forming as the, uh, as the water condensed out of the atmosphere. And, and uh, in fact, the, the very early signs of life we have or evidence for life on, on Earth go back to that period, uh, which is good news for astrobiology. It could mean that, that life is a natural consequence of having the right conditions, which came about quite early uh, on the Earth. Uh, meanwhile, on Venus, um, well, actually, I'll start with Mars first so that we can draw more easily the comparison. Mars is much smaller, much further away from the from the sun. It, it also would have had uh, water condensing out on the surface. It would have had a much thicker atmosphere than it does right now. And so the thicker atmosphere would have allowed it to retain um, uh, temperatures at the surface that would have allowed water to remain in a liquid state. Uh, but being much smaller, uh, the geological activity uh, on Mars, uh, at least uh, activity that would enable it to have a recycling of the atmosphere to the interior, uh, would have been relatively short-lived. And uh, that means that it wouldn't have been able to um, uh, recycle uh, a lot of the carbon to the, back to the interior. And the other thing is that Mars being so small uh, would have been very vulnerable to the loss of its atmosphere. The, uh, the pressure of the solar wind from the sun exerts uh, a, a pressure on planets that orbit it. And this pressure actually causes uh, the atmospheres to 
to uh, be stripped away. Uh, and we've seen this for Mars, even now. It, Mars has a very tenuous atmosphere, but we can see the atmosphere being stripped away. Uh, there was a spacecraft called MAVEN that was able to measure this for Mars. Uh, and we've learned a lot about the, the stripping of uh, just planetary atmospheres in general. So all of this to say that, that during that period, Mars would have had a period when it did have uh, liquid surface water. Um, it may have even had uh, early start of life, perhaps, since, as I mentioned, it seemed to start pretty quickly on, on the Earth. Uh, but that was relatively short-lived, say, like the, the first uh, billion years after it got to that stage. But as I said, meanwhile on Venus, um, uh, there's several possible scenarios. And one is that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of water was probably delivered to Venus. We have a lot of evidence for that. And, 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 and do you think, uh, by via asteroidal impact, you mean, cometary? Uh, some commentary and uh, some of it condensed out of the disk. It's, uh, that's one of those areas where it's a continuing topic of discussion because uh, when I was uh, an undergraduate and before that when I was in high school, uh, there was uh, the idea that a lot of the water which now exists on the Earth and the other planetary bodies in the inner solar system were, were delivered from the outer part of the solar system from cometary impacts. Uh, that uh, now it seems that that conversation is heading more towards a lot of the water actually condensing out of the disk from which they formed. So, so, so it's a combination so, okay, of Okay, so things. if you could break that down for us a bit. Uh, so uh, yeah. the paradigm, when I wrote my book, Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, which came out about 20 years ago, was that, uh, that if I remember correctly, was you know was that Earth had most of its water delivered by asteroidal or cometary impact? Uh, we knew that planets form in a disk that you know surround their protostar, and that the planets form out of this, and and uh, then they kind of play uh, a bumper pool, or you know uh, it's kind of a yeah. chaotic uh, situation as these uh, planetesimals uh, form bigger and bigger bodies and. They're all kind of in orbit with each other, and they kind of clear out their or orbital paths. And, of course, the sun's, uh, you know, evolution has a bit to do with that as well, clearing out the dust. Um, but um, so the paradigm used to be that, if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that most of the water on Earth came from cometary or asteroidal delivery. And, but what you're saying is the paradigm is shifting so that... Uh, to to actually believe that some at least some of the water on the early inner planets was delivered by condensation of water that was in the the planetary disk from which our solar system formed. Or am I hearing you? Correctly? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that, you understood that correctly. There's there's been a great deal more work um, over the past couple of decades, especially as we understand. Uh, planetary architectures uh, from studying planets around other stars and the way in which those evolve with time, where we've seen planets form um, around other stars. Uh, part of the uh, evidence for that is original theories regarding the formation of the solar system more or less demanded that most of the water come from cometary impacts because 
the idea was that terrestrial planets form close to the sun where it's hot. The giant planets form far from the sun where it's cold, and that's where you can have a lot of the, the water ice condense out of the disk. Then you just need to find a way to move that water to the inner part of the solar system, and that's things like Jupiter disturbing those objects and then sending them hurtling our way. Uh, but, but now we understand from other planetary systems that you can actually have a range of planets. You don't necessarily have to have uh, giant planets form far from the star. Uh, and certainly after they do form, you can have them move. Uh, so it seems that, uh, that there's a great deal more randomness or chaos involved in the material that's in a disk from which planets form. Uh, and you can have a much, much larger percentage that is of the uh, water-ice condensates that you would normally expect far from the star. How would that process actually work of, of water in the, in the planetary disk from which the planets are forming condense? What, what starts that process and how does it actually work so that the water ends up uh, you know, in liquid form on a planet? Yeah, so part of the premise of uh, when we're building planets is that you're building it from solids. And so uh, when we talk about the building blocks of planets, we're talking about material that would condense out of the disk at different temperatures. And the content, part of the contention has been that, uh, well, you're not going to have water ice or water in a, in a solid state uh, where the terrestrial planets formed. And so they're not going to be a significant part of the building blocks, but they can still be part of the formation. It's just that they spend a lot, a lot more time uh, in the atmosphere before it condenses out uh, as the planet cools. And so I think what's largely happened is that we've seen an underestimation of how much of that material condenses out as the planet cools. And when you say condenses uh, out, do you mean it actually condenses like, like precipitation, rain or something like that, something similar? Precipitation, but from the, it gets trapped in the interior as well. And so it's, it's, it's from, from, a numerous, uh, from numerous mechanisms. So, yeah, so. Um, well, let's get back to Venus. Um, why, in, you know, in you know, a paragraph or two, <laughs> in 30 seconds or less, <laughs> no, I'm just teasing you, how did, uh, why did Venus go wrong? I mean, we see a lot of headlines <laughs> Why did Venus go wrong? Uh, what's the short yeah. answer? Yeah, so there, there's, there's two. It, it's the current thoughts, it seems to be splitting into two major avenues. One is that um, either Venus never really had oceans in the first place. So if you imagine the very young Venus, it's kind of the same period as the Hedaean period of the Earth where it's cooling off. And the, and the difference there was that the Earth did cool off. It was far enough away from the sun and it was able to get, condense out the water into oceans. But the idea um, uh, that Venus may never have had surface liquid water is based on the idea that the water wasn't really able to condense out because the surface of Venus remained in a magma state um, similar to, to the Earth, but it remained in a magma state much longer than the Earth because of the proximity to the sun. And so it was able to stay in a magma state long enough such that the water never really condensed out of the atmosphere. It stayed as, as water vapor, which is a very strong greenhouse gas. And so that started to make the surface even warmer uh, from the very start. Uh, 
and so th there's that idea that, that Venus was just always in this terrible state that we see it now in. The alternative is that, indeed, Venus went through the end of the Hadean period very similar to the Earth, and that it did have surface liquid water, uh, and that it was able to retain uh, liquid water oceans um, for, for about three billion years, or maybe even as much as three and a half billion years. So now we're only talking about one billion years ago. And one of the things that my Earth science colleagues always tell me about the history of the Earth, that one of the most amazing things about the Earth is that it has had surface liquid water for almost its entire history. You know, modulo things like ice ages and things like that, but you still had um, uh, liquid water underneath the ice, but you, but Earth has had predominantly surface liquid water throughout its history, which means that the surface temperature has remained within a very narrow range, and that's extraordinary. And so it all depends on being able to maintain that very narrow range of temperatures. And the reason that the Earth is able to do that is because it's able to recycle the carbon through uh, weathering and these uh, subduction of the surface into the interior. And so that's the process that keeps the temperature on the surface of the Earth fairly moderate. And can you, Venus, can, and can you do uh, explain, uh, just to parenthetically explain what you mean by subduction and, um, and also yeah. the carbon recycling, just a brief uh, explanation for people who are not familiar with that. And I assume the Hedean period would play out in extra, extrasolar planetary systems on, on other Earth-like planets. Uh, this kind of cooling that you talk about uh, after in which uh, you know the water condensates, uh, water condenses rather onto the surfaces and starts forming oceans and lakes and and liquid water. But it has the the planet has to be cool enough to begin with for the for the water to to remain in a liquid state. Am I wrong? Yes, that, that that's exactly right. Um, uh, so for for the Earth. Um, the, the Earth has this process whereby it's pumping carbon into the atmosphere. And this goes back to this, uh, this idea of how much carbon does a planet like the Earth actually have? And the answer is a lot. Uh, as you know, carbon dioxide is a very small percentage of, of the Earth's atmosphere at the moment. It's mostly nitrogen and then oxygen and then a little bit of carbon dioxide. And that might lead somebody to incorrectly think, well, that means that the Earth doesn't have much carbon, but actually the Earth has, has carbon probably more than Venus. And but the question is, where? so if it has so much carbon, where, where does the Earth put it? And the answer is in the interior, So uh, and on the surface in the form of carbonate rocks. So what happens is when it rains and the, the rains uh, remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and removes it from the carbonate rocks. And that carbon moves then down to the ocean floor. And uh, at the ocean floor, that's where we have most of the, the uh, fault lines between continental plates. And that's where subduction occurs, where one plate starts to move under another plate. And what that does is that carries the carbon back into the interior of the Earth. And in the interior of the Earth, the carbon melts, and then it's released back into the atmosphere um, uh, through the mechanism of vol volcanic outgassing. Uh, and this is a process which happens extremely slowly. 
Uh, it's very, very sensitive to temperature. Uh, and so that's what provides this thermostat, which keeps the uh, temperature at the surface of the Earth in this relatively narrow range that I mentioned earlier. I mean, that's absolutely so the idea is, fantastic, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, that's incredible what you just described. Yeah, and, and it's something that has taken us a long time to, to figure out. Even this whole idea of plate tectonics is, is only being relatively recently accepted over the, over the past century. Uh, but we, we now are really understanding how does the Earth manage to do this incredible feat of keeping the temperature in a narrow range to have this continual presence of surface liquid water. And so when it comes to Venus, you think, okay, well then, what, ha what happened? Why did it lose the ability that the Earth still has? And it's due to the breaking of that thermostat. If you break the thermostat, it means that it's, the temperature is going to go one way or the other. And what this means for recycling of carbon, if you imagine a Venus that was very, very similar to the Earth, and, and by the way, I should be clear that this scenario is, is now, I would say, the favored one. Uh, so so uh, the majority of the scientific community are now leaning towards an idea that as little as a billion or maybe a little bit more than a billion years ago, you could imagine the surface of Venus that looks very similar to the surface of the Earth. Liquid water oceans. and, and As and recently as a billion years ago. Like as recently as a billion yeah. years ago. Well, that's, uh, that, yes. that wasn't the standard paradigm 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, was it? Right, yes. This, is, this, this has changed incredibly uh, in, in recent years. Well, then, um, the, then the question and, I have to ask is, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but the question I have to ask is, could Venus's fate have been different? I'm, uh, I mean, could we have could we have readily have ended up with a, a sister planet very much like our own? Well, um, possibly. There's a certain amount of uh, randomness to, to all of these things, especially if, if there were impacts in, involved. But but uh, but what we think happened is that uh, Venus being closer to the sun. Uh, presently, Venus receives about twice the amount of energy from the sun than the Earth does. And, and the sun increases in luminosity with time. As the sun gets older, it gets brighter, and that means more energy is received. And, uh, and so although Venus may have been able to get away with having temperate surface conditions when it was younger, as the sun became brighter, uh, it became harder and harder for Venus. And what may have happened at some point, as I said, maybe as recently as about a billion years ago, is that the, te the, uh, the temperature increase due to the increase in luminosity from the sun will have started to evaporate the oceans. And as you evaporate the oceans, then you end up with more water vapor in the atmosphere, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a very uh, efficient greenhouse gas. And uh, as you add this greenhouse gas to the atmosphere, the temperature starts to become warmer and warmer. Now, if that happens, that happens to the Earth now, by the way, but the response of the Earth to remove uh, more carbon at, from the atmosphere and to precipitate out the water vapor. Water vapor in the Earth's atmosphere uh, is actually a very small fraction. We see clouds, 
But then what happens when you have clouds? It rains. So the water vapor goes up into the Earth's atmosphere and then it comes straight back out. Now, the question is, what happens if the water vapor is being pushed into the atmosphere at a faster rate at which it can precipitate out? Then you start to have a problem because then the temperature starts to rise. And uh, once you evaporate all of the surface uh, liquid water, you no longer have a mechanism through which you can easily subduct carbon back into the interior. So whereas the Earth currently locks its carbon away in things like carbonate rocks and pushes it back into the interior, the, the scenario for Venus is that once it lost its surface liquid water, it no longer had anywhere to store its carbon except in the atmosphere. And so the volcanic outgassing kept pushing out the carbon more um, carbon dioxide, which means more uh, greenhouse warming. And it eventually reached the state it's at today, which was that the atmosphere is almost entirely carbon dioxide. Uh, and the water vapor, which was there in, in, the, uh, uh, in the atmosphere, has, has been destroyed. And by that, I mean the, uh, the water vapor is uh, very easily disassociated into hydrogen carbon, and then the hydrogen escapes through the effect of the stellar wind I mentioned earlier. Same process that removes the atmosphere of Mars, that removes the hydrogen, then you're left with oxygen. Then the oxygen oxidizes the rocks at the surface or gets stored in the interior. Uh, and so that's the, that's the pathway that we think uh, that it got to its present state. Tragic, tragic story, and like you said earlier, heartbreaking that it turned out that way. And but uh, what has changed the planetary scientists' minds about uh, why Venus, only as recently as a billion years ago, could have had habitable conditions? I mean, uh, so there's been a couple of uh, main things which have happened. Um, uh, we haven't had a lot of uh, missions to to Venus. Uh, and there's a, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, since I've been part of the Venus scientific community for the, for the past decade or so, uh, I've observed that they're a very data-starved community. They look at, with great envy at their Martian colleagues who seem to just get, you know, rovers and orbiters and everything thrown at them. There's, there's a number of reasons for that, <laughs> <laughs> which is that uh, uh, Mars... Uh, surface is far more accessible, you know, meaning that you can send a, a, a rover there, like we've seen in recent years, rovers that go there and, and last well beyond their sell-by date because uh, there's nothing really on the surface of Mars to bother them too much. But if you send something to the surface of Venus, then it's not going to last very long. And so um, we, we tend to have a memory of the Venera spacecraft, which landed on the surface and only lasted about an hour before they melted. Um, uh, but, uh, but there has been more data in recent years from a variety of missions uh, that have measured the atmosphere. And what we've found in the atmosphere of Venus is a very high amount of deuterium. And deuterium, which is essentially uh, heavy hydrogen, and it's, it's, um, uh, deuterium is uh, evidence of disassociation of water that happens in the atmosphere. As I mentioned, that's how Venus would have lost its water. And do we see any evidence of that? And yes, we see a lot of heavy hydrogen in the atmosphere, way more than for the Earth. 
And so this is an indicator of massive amounts of water loss. And so the question is when that would have happened. And the answer to your question is about what, what has changed in the planetary science community just recently is I would say it's a computational change because over the past decade, the ability to develop very complex climate models based off of Earth climate models and other similar climate models, uh, that has um, had an extraordinary uh, development over the past, uh, I would say, over the, mainly over the past decade. And the development of these climate models and being able to apply them to not only to the Earth, but to Mars and to planets around other stars, but also to Venus, uh, allowed uh, several groups, most particularly uh, Michael Way at the uh, Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York. Uh, he ran a, a climate model and published it back in 2016, which was one of the first papers that really demonstrated that a climate model uh, uh, is, has can have a stable, temperate surface environment on the surface of Venus as recently as a billion years ago. That's absolutely uh, incredible and, and amazing. And uh, so th th do you mean then that uh, after the Hadean, Venus's Hadean period when it cooled and, and had the water constant, uh, condensation from our uh, solar system's planetary disk uh, and maybe delivery of... of uh, volatiles like water, as we discussed earlier, um, that Venus may have had oceans or lakes or rivers uh, extending over maybe two to three billion years? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, and um, and that's... Uh, so that just kind of like... Uh, a very that, common way of thinking about it. That term, uh, that kind of turns the, the, the conventional paradigm. You know, if you read a... a a planetary science book, uh, just a basic survey course in a, in a university uh, written 40 or 50 years ago, they would have never said that, would they? No, I don't think they would have really been uh, thinking along those lines. They wouldn't really have um, uh, strong enough evidence to be able to make that claim. Uh, and part of the problem is that the, the current surface of Venus uh, and this is one of the extraordinary things about Venus, by the way, is that when we look at the surface of Venus, we can tell from the amount of crater impacts that we can see on the surface that uh, most of the surface of Venus is about the same age. And the estimates of that age vary between about 700 million years to 1 billion years. Uh, and and we don't really fully understand the the process that resurfaced the entire planet at once. I mean, that in itself is extraordinary and could be related to the cataclysmic loss of surface liquid water. Uh, but it does in some sense mean that prior to the current age of the surface of about a billion years, we have a blank slate. We don't know what the surface uh, could have been like. And there, as I said, we have various evidence that there was massive water loss. Um, but but yeah, the, the 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 current thinking is that it was recent. But the Magellan spacecraft, which, uh, uh, if I'm not incorrect, uh, visited uh, the NASA spacecraft, which took uh, uh, X-ray, not X-ray, but the radar ranging, uh, uh, did a radar ranging survey of the almost the whole of Venus. I think up 97 percent of Venus. Am I wrong? Uh, 
uh, yeah, that's fair. found some evidence of a ocean-like area uh, that could have been an ocean, they think, uh, or not. Well, so one of the things that, that, that does make us think more about this is the, the uh, presence of uh, highlands and lowlands. Uh, it, it has um, several very definite continental regions. Uh, and so the, the mapping, the radar mapping by Magellan really provided unprecedented insight into where these highland and lowland regions are and how they could be related to possible uh, previous locations of surface liquid water. Right. Okay. And so um, what about the axial tilt of, of Venus? Uh, because it's, it's, uh, it has a counter-rotation, doesn't it? The, it doesn't rotate. Yes. The, the, can you explain a bit about that, uh, how Earth rotates and in comparison yeah. to the way that Venus is rotating, and it's it also is kind of on its side, isn't it? It's lying on its side and rotating, and with and curiously enough, without any moon. Do you think Venus once had a moon? Um, yeah. Of course, of course those, Mercury those are, Mercury doesn't. Those are have a lot moon. of good questions. Go ahead. It, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of differences between Venus and Earth other than just the amount of energy it receives from the sun. And this is one of the most interesting parts for me as a scientist who studies this in trying to understand the history of Venus and uh, what was the dominant effect. Because it's very tempting for us to say, or simply say, that, well, Venus is closer to the sun, and so that's the reason for everything. (laughs) That's the reason why we see that it has evolved differently. But, but you actually hear that like you, like, you hear that argument a lot in, in planetary circles. I mean, you know, basically the short answer, it was just too close to the, to the sun, right? Yeah. And, and it's possible that is the, the dominant driver of the evolution. However, as you mentioned, there are many other differences. It doesn't uh, have a moon, uh, meaning that it didn't have a, uh, a, you know, with the earth, there was an object which we call Thea, which, uh, which, struck the earth and then the material coalesced into uh, what is now the moon. Uh, Venus could have had impacts like that before, but, uh, but we don't see any evidence for that. Um, uh, you also mentioned that the spin axis is uh, almost uh, perpendicular to the plane of the solar system. The earth uh, has an actual tilt of 23 and a half degrees. And so it has these seasons, but, but Venus doesn't have that. It's just, uh, perfectly perpendicular, and it's rotating the opposite way from uh, almost all the other planets in our solar system. We call that a retrograde rotation. Um, and uh, there are there are a couple of possible reasons for that. Uh, people have been thinking about this for a long time as to whether it's just simple tidal forcing. And what I mean by that is uh, that when we uh, look at a planet which is very close to a very massive object like the sun. The gravity of the sun will try to force that object so that the same side faces it all the time. And the most obvious example of that is our moon. But the surface of Venus, the atmospheric pressure uh, is about 90 times the atmospheric pressure of the Earth. It's, specifically, it's about 94 times the atmospheric pressure of the Earth. Uh Sometimes it's, it's difficult for people to, to visualize what that means. And so I say it's about the equivalent of the pressure of being a, at a depth of uh, one kilometer in the, in the Earth's ocean. 
Mm, uh, if you incredible. were to go to one, and, and that of course is way below the safe scuba diving bit. Right <laughs> so now, you could you uh, is, just uh, just parenthetically, you mentioned title uh, title uh, being tidally locked. Uh, can you explain yes. what that means and in what context you were referring? Yeah, so so tidal locking just simply means when when the same side of an object is facing another object, usually a more massive object. So if an object, uh, sorry, if a planet is tidally locked to its star, the same side of the planet faces the star in the same way that the same side of the moon faces the Earth. Now that's not totally true of Venus. It does rotate. It's not completely tidally locked. But uh, some have speculated that, that that could be a significant part of it in the sense that we are yep. seeing the process of Venus being tidally locked to the sun. And, and it has a very it. slow rotation, right? Very slow rotation. So, so what I was saying about the surface pressure, that's important for this because the, the, it turns out the atmosphere itself can slow down the planet. And in fact, over the years that we've been using radar to measure the surface of Venus, which is the only way that we can measure the rotation, because as I mentioned, from, from here on Earth, we can't see the surface and the top of the atmosphere is rotating very quickly. So we can only tell this from radar measurements of the surface. And the, the measurements of the rotation have varied over the years by a small amount, but they have changed in a way that we don't quite understand yet. But the surface pressure, if you imagine the enormous pressure exerted, equivalent to, as I said, a kilometer depth in the ocean, on the surface of Venus, constantly as the planet tries to rotate and it's working against the enormous pressure from the atmosphere, then the, the thinking now is that that has had a non-trivial effect, that that, uh, or non-negligible, I should say, uh, on the uh, on the rotation of Venus over time, and that it could actually be a combination of tidal interactions with the sun, but also the interaction with its own incredibly massive atmosphere is uh, causing this huge difference we see between the Earth and Venus. Well, let's step back and uh, kind of look at where we are in, in terms of its exploration and, and kind of the bigger picture. Um, where should we land on Venus? Well, let's put it to you like this. We've, but we've had some recent uh, orbital missions which have told us a lot about the atmospheric super rotation, which is pretty incredible, uh, and the winds uh, that are thought to be on Venus now, if I'm correct. Now, what about landing again? Because back when the Soviet missions were active in landing on Venus with the Venera missions, as you said, some of them some of them only lasted a few minutes, and I think the longest was... A couple of hours, maybe. I, I'd have to look that up. But uh, now we have incredibly robust technology that are, 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 is solving some of the problems that a spacecraft or a rover even would experience if NASA or the European Space Agency decided to send a probe, uh, a, a lander back to, to the surface. Um, could you kind of fill us in on that? Yeah, so um, uh, when a lot of people think about going back to Venus and the difficulties involved, they, they often think back to the, 
to how long the veneer of land has lasted, which was to say not very long at all. But uh, the uh, that's part of the attraction of going to Mars instead of Venus, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you you might easily think, well, why would we spend so much money going back to Venus when we can only get an hour's worth of data? But uh, what has been extraordinary to me uh, as I've been involved in the Venus community over the past decade is how much uh, further the technology has progressed in that respect. Uh, as you might expect, when you when you drop a lander on the surface of Venus, one of the first things to go due to the enormous heat and pressure is, uh, is the electronics. Well, the electronics... Um, uh, being able to survive under extreme conditions, that has uh, uh, expanded tremendously since the 60s and 70s. Uh, and so now current plans for a lander on the surface. Uh, I, I, when I first uh, spoke to the um, people involved in Venus missions, I thought, well, maybe we can, now we can get to a few hours or maybe a few days. It's actually months now that they could have something survive on the surface of Venus. That's incredible. And there's even plans for, if you can believe this, is even plans for a uh, for a, uh, a rover on the surface of Venus, which would be... I'm actually, I did, a, I did a, a couple of Forbes posts on the, on this new technology and, and, and potentially a rover mission and even maybe, you know, some sort of a, a land uh, sail mission, um, which, yeah. which is on my Forbes blog. But, but go ahead, please continue. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's there's a lot of ideas on the table now, and and it's it's uh, gradually uh, increasing awareness amongst the rest of the planetary science and and also the exoplanet community about how much more we can do now than we could decades ago, and what is the science that we could get out of that that we weren't previously thinking about things like looking for evidence of of surface liquid water and and. So what we'd ideally like to do is uh, would like to um, uh, land at, at several different locations uh, to test the, uh, the composition of, of the surface. As I mentioned earlier, we wanted to know where the oxygen left after the uh, sorry where the oxygen went after the ox- uh, the water was removed, and so part of that will be to look at basaltic rocks at the surface. But we also want to understand the current volcanism of Venus. We do have a lot of indirect evidence that Venus is still volcanically active, and that's important for understanding the interior and the geology. And so um, landing at different uh, possible uh, volcanic hotspots would be very very advantageous. And also we want to uh, deploy seismometers uh, on Venus. Uh, As we spoke earlier, Venus rotates very slowly and doesn't have a moon. And one of the problems with a slow rotating object that doesn't have another object orbiting it is that it's very hard to understand what the interior of the object would be like because you have very little uh, in terms of measuring the moment of inertia, meaning the way in which the interior of the planet is moving. So we know almost nothing about the interior of Venus. And as you may know, we've, we we have a, um, uh, a seismometer on Mars at the moment called InSight, uh, and that has detected uh, seismic activity of Mars. Uh, it would be much, much more exciting, in my opinion, to to deliver seismometers to the surface of Venus and to study this seismology of Venus and understand the interior. Well, let's but all of that is about. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. 
uh, I was just going to say all of that is about the, 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 the surface. I should also stress that there's still a great deal we don't understand about the atmosphere. And when you look at recently proposed uh, missions, I'm on, on the science team for several uh, NASA missions. Uh, one of them is called Da Vinci, which is, uh, is a proposed mission to deploy a lander uh, to the surface of Venus, but most of the measurements will be taken passing through the atmosphere. And there's a great deal that we don't understand about what we call the deep atmosphere of Venus, close to the surface. And that's a key part of um, uh, trying to understand planetary atmospheres in general. Right. Okay. The, talk, uh, the clock is uh, ticking, but uh, we have time for a, a last few questions. And this one is probably the one that most people are uh, kind of hopefully sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for you to answer. And that is, <laughs> that is could uh, Venus have ever had surface life? Uh, not just microfossils, but let's say we know, we know life evolved here. Uh, well, several billion years, it was basically multicellular life, if I'm not incorrect. But then there was this kind of explosion in our oceans uh, of life. Could, could Venus, if it had oceans with liquid water and it was, uh, you know, a fairly stable climate for over, say, three billion years, could, could complex life or organisms or, you know, something approaching the kind of sea life that we see in, you know, could, have, could that kind of uh, evolution have occurred on Venus? So you might have something akin to, you know, basic uh, sea creatures. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, Bruce, that when it comes to that question, I'm a believer. And uh, what, what I mean by that is that uh, I, I think that given this premise that it had surface liquid water for three billion years, that I think that's um, more than enough time for it to develop some sort of a, an ecosystem. As you mentioned, uh, the complex life on Earth through uh, things like the Cambrian explosion and so on have occurred relatively recently uh, within Earth's history, but there's still... Uh, plenty of time uh, for there to have been uh, development of plant life and, and so on, on on the surface of of Venus. And it is interesting in some sense when you look at these science fiction films that predated the Venera landers where they speculated about um, uh, life on the surface of Venus. It was always in a very, uh, or portrayed in a way such that Venus was lagging behind Earth in some way, that it was some kind of prehistoric world. Um, and uh, I, I, I think it's difficult to, for, all, for me at least, to imagine uh, a surface of Venus where there would have been complex life, um, uh, certainly anything like we see on the surface of Earth now. But I, I, I think there would have been more than enough time for life to take hold and to start modifying the surface of the planet in the way that life has certainly modified the surface. When you say so, you're, so you're saying there would not have been life evolving in the oceans except for perhaps uh, multicellular microbial life. Is that is that what you mean? Uh, no, I, I I think it could have gone beyond that. Um, uh, as you know, on the in the history of uh, of life on Earth, a lot of the changes occurred when you started to have the rise of oxygen uh, in the Earth's atmosphere and 
there's uh, there's various debates about exactly when that would have happened. But, but that, that generally is agreed to happen two, two point two point four billion years yeah. after the formation, yeah. right? So that's yeah, that's the range when it when when that would have happened. Something similar could have happened on Venus. You could have had a rise of uh, oxygen, um, uh, but it would be it'd be really interesting to. Uh, to try and find more evidence for those kinds of changes which may have occurred. Okay, so then the, the, other, the other question is, uh, uh, you know, from planetary scientists, I've, other planetary scientists I've spoken to over the years, they all say, well, you know, even if Venus did develop life, you know, we'd have a hell of a time trying to find evidence for it at this point because the surface has been resurfaced by catastrophic overturn, perhaps a volcanic... Uh, catastrophic, catastrophic overturn, which has not only erased the record of cratering by uh, large impactors over the over the eons, but it would probably have also erased the record of record of microfossils. Uh, what hope do you have for a detect for a ro- well, Let's say let's say within the next fifty years. So let's say that. The technology improves where we can actually get a, a rover and go around and sample, maybe even drill uh, drill under the surface of Venus um, to some, you know, maybe a couple of um, hundred uh, meters. Would we have any chance of finding microfossils at, at such depths? Uh, so I would say that I, I agree with... Uh the, uh, the comments that you've had from other people, it's going to be extremely difficult. And uh, I, I think it's more akin to what we're currently doing on Mars, which is uh, searching for indirect evidence. So not uh, looking for uh, necessarily direct evidence of microfossils, but indirect evidence that conditions may have previously been suitable to harbor that kind of life. And I, uh, I, I think the importance of that is that if we uh, imagine that only a billion years ago that Venus uh, did look very similar to the Earth, uh, the the same as the Earth back then, uh, then this is extremely profound for the search for life elsewhere. Because one of the things I sometimes uh, say to people when I talk to them about this subject is, I say, if you only look at the solar system, the way it is right now, then you are missing most of what it has to teach us. Meaning that if we were an alien civilization and we looked at our solar system a billion years ago, then there's a very good chance that we would have uh, concluded that there's two uh, habitable planets and they're the same size right next to each other. How cool would that be? So that's what they they would have concluded a a billion years ago. And that means that when we're looking um, at other planetary systems and we're trying to place them within the context of what we know about our own solar system we shouldn't be immediately ruling out planets the size of of the earth and venus uh which are closer to their stars because they could be at a very different stage of their history the same way that, that venus was but like i said i think it's really the indirect evidence that there was uh past surface water on Venus that would have made it suitable for life rather than finding direct evidence of the life itself. So you were actually saying a billion years ago, if aliens, uh, alien astronomers were, were surveying Earth and our solar system, or surveying the solar system in the same way that we are 
trying to characterize extrasolar planetary systems with Earth-like planets today with the TESS mission and, and future missions that uh, NASA and other agencies are proposing, uh, they would probably come to the conclusion that, that our solar system not only had our Earth, which would harbor life, but also Venus. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That, that, that's exactly right. And, <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, and, and the thing is, when we look at another planetary system, we don't know what stage of its history that planetary system is at. And, uh, and so we could be looking into uh, the equivalent of the past of our solar system. We could be looking into the future. We, and so uh, it, it helps us keep that in perspective about the fact that planets evolve, they change with time, and we are trying to get these small windows into what the, uh, these uh, objects were previously like. And so uh, what about the people, there are a few people now who say that, that Venus's upper atmosphere may even harbor extant existing microbial life. What do you think? Yeah, there's been a few ideas about that, and this um, that idea has been around for quite a while. Uh, Carl Sagan used to speak about this. Uh, as you know, Carl Sagan was an incredibly inspirational and imaginative person. He seemed to have ideas that you just you just don't know how he had the capacity for it. But he had uh, ideas about life in the clouds of Jupiter and life in the clouds of Venus. And that's basically based on this idea that, well, if all we need are those temperate conditions, which, as I said, we've had at the Earth's surface throughout most of Earth's history, then maybe all we need is those temperate conditions regardless of whether there's a surface or not. So if we can find that location within the atmosphere of a planet, be it Jupiter or Venus or whatever, then, then maybe there's a chance. And so people have been thinking about that for the, uh, for the Venetian atmosphere. If you go high enough, then the temperature uh, is actually, actually quite reasonable. The, 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 it's, it, it's, it's a very difficult proposition because there's, there's no uh, liquid water, which is at the location insofar as you need liquid water to have biochemical reactions. It would be very difficult to sustain the population without it migrating downwards and and uh, and perishing. So it, the, there are, however, plans on future uh, missions that will pass through the atmosphere to look for potential changes in the atmosphere that could be caused by biological activity. And what about the people who uh, who are worried about the fate of our own Earth? And you know, they keep saying, "Well, you know, maybe in you know, hundred thousand years, we'll." be forced to to move off world for any number of reasons um could venus ever be terraformed and and should it be terraformed uh well in terms of whether it could i, I that that would be an extremely difficult but very very interesting i should say planetary engineering um uh project uh i i think it would be very very difficult to uh to return Venus to its its former temperate glory, if you like, uh, and that's because, as I mentioned, the the water really has been lost at this point. So you would need to uh, to deliver a significant amount of fresh new water to, to to Venus in order to 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 make that work. If you were able to 
uh, process the atmosphere in any way. As to what, as to whether we should, I don't know. I you know the way I feel about Venus is although as we said at the very start, it's somewhat of a of a tragic story and heartbreaking. Um, it's also uh, a, a very interesting museum, if you like, or a warning of what can happen in the way that planets evolve. I find um, uh, Venus just fascinating from the point of view of just it, its current conditions are, are pretty incredible to study, but, but also its past history leading it to where it is today. And I think part of the lesson of that is that once you get to that point where you've lost your water, you have a runaway greenhouse, you have this carbon dioxide atmosphere, there's no real going back from that. And uh, I, I think that's something that we can learn a lot from. It's a cautionary tale. Studying and, the evolution. And it's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale, tale and it's, it, it's, it's something that uh, I, in some ways I feel like if we went there and we erased that record by terraforming it, then we would be losing a lot of potential future study about the way in which planets evolve. So scientifically, it's uh, probably not, not good to... To Russia yeah, to we only have one Venus, uh, and so the, there's the uh, the uh, Indiana Jones part of me that would like to see it preserved in a museum, so to speak, <laughs> okay. um, right. so that we can always study it. Well, finally, give us uh, the, the last question is just you know speculate on this. Uh, give us a taste of what a crew uh, a crew of astronauts uh, who, are, who who somehow can overcome the surface pressures and the temperatures, and walk around on the surface of Venus as we see it today. Um, paint a picture of it. What what would they actually yeah. see, and um, what would be the closest comparison to anything we might experience on Earth? Oh, well, it would certainly be a very barren environment, uh, perhaps comparable to, I was going to say a desert, but probably more aptly suited to more like a rocky uh, barren environment, um, maybe even a little bit volcanic, but uh, but in but the it would be very difficult to move. As I mentioned, that that, that surface pressure moving slowly across the surface just pushes everything in its path, uh, and uh, it would be surprisingly dark on the surface of Venus because the atmosphere is so thick. Only about four percent of the of the light from the sun that hits the top of the atmosphere makes it to the surface. Mm. The Earth's atmosphere is much more transparent. Uh, most of the uh, uh, light that hits the top of the Earth's atmosphere makes it to the surface. But Venus, it's a very small amount, which, by the way, is a is is a difficult part in planning surface future missions. Insofar as you want to have solar panels that power a rover or something like that, they have to be extremely efficient. But uh, you wouldn't be able to see very far in any particular direction due to the due to the thickness of, of the atmosphere, and so it would probably be very difficult to to make out a horizon, say a, a mountainous horizon. And so, um, uh, and I think I have seen some portrayals that uh, that the that the air might have a yellow tint to it as well, partly due to the uh, sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, thank you, uh, Stephen, uh, for spending, for being so generous with your time. Uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time no to speak to Cosmic Controversy. And uh, just wanted to know if uh, listeners would like to 
reach out to you for comments or questions? Uh, do you have a website they can follow you on or a Twitter feed or anything like that? Yes, uh, they can. Um, uh, if they Google my name, they'll find me pretty quickly. But also I have a website called stephenkane.net. That's my, uh, my work website where you can find information about the research I do. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is exocytherian. Uh, if you don't know what uh, uh, cytherian, then uh, that's the old uh, Latin phrase referring to things pertaining to the planet Venus. Wow. Um, and the exo part is, of course, because I study Venus as well as exo-Venuses. So. Well, thank you so, so much. Uh, just wanted to, uh, you know, hope your weather uh, in uh, sunny California is better than Venus uh, today. So, <laughs> <laughs> Slightly, very slightly cooler. Okay, great. But at least you have some sunshine. Yes, I do. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you, Bruce. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.